In this episode, we're going to talk about 10 things that every first-time homebuyer needs to know. With over 50 years of real estate experience, the team at Powell Fine Homes have dedicated our careers to taking care of our clients, ensuring that they get the best possible results and service when they engage us to represent them. From first-time home buyers to multi-million dollar home sellers, from regular sales to short sales and foreclosures, we've seen it all and educated our clients along the way. As broker owners, we have serious visibility into the Los Angeles and Ventura County real estate markets and are about to share some of what we're seeing with you right now. Get ready for the Powell Fine Homes Real Estate Show. Okay, welcome to another episode. Today we're talking about 10 things that every first-time buyer, home buyer, needs to know. My name is Richard Powell. I'm the host of the show, and I'm also a licensed real estate broker here in California. And today I'm also joined by... Kirsten Powell, and I am also a licensed real estate broker here in the state of California. Two brokers for the price of the one. That's what you get every time you talk to us. And so today, Kirsten, we want to talk about 10 things that every first-time home buyer should know. Yeah, there are actually quite a few things that are really of great importance. So we are glad that you tuned in to uh, get to know more about that right now. Excellent. Let's start first and foremost. For a first-time buyer, the biggest thing that we start with is knowing their needs. And not only do we know need to know their needs, they need to know their needs. And when we talk about needs, Kirsten, what are we talking about? Uh, we're talking about location, schools, size of the home, and, of course, what's the lifestyle uh, of them and their family. Yeah, let, let's talk about location first. You know, a perfect example, last weekend uh, I met with some new first-time buyers we're dealing with right now that we met at an open house a few months ago, and they weren't ready to buy them, but now they're starting to get back into that cycle. And they found a house online they really, really liked. It was beautifully remodeled. They'd done some, actually even some structural alterations. It looked great. Uh, it, the house was very attractive, good-sized kitchen, had the right size for them and everything else, but the location was bad. It was right next to, not only was it right next to a major road, but it also was a corner lot, and those two streets on the corner that it bordered were two of the main arteries in and out of that neighborhood. So they had a triple whammy on that, so we, we really couldn't go past that. But what are, what are some of the other location issues you've seen, Kirsten? Bagging to the wash if you were in the valley. Uh, if you're out in Simi Valley, if you're backing to the train tracks, I mean, that's yeah. a pretty, pretty noisy event. Uh, also, if you were living uh, near the highway. That, too, is one of the location issues that you can come across. It is. And one of the first things we tell our buyers when we start dealing with our first-time home buyers, but we actually have this conversation with all buyers, is as you're looking online and you're looking at homes, and we know everybody does, I, I think at this point I think it's 96 or 97% of all buyers look online before they even talk to an agent. So as you're looking online, always go to the satellite view and look at the house from the satellite view. You want to see, is there a train track behind it? Is it across the street from an elementary school? Uh, you know, as Kirsten said, on a wash on, in the city of Los Angeles in the West San Fernando Valley, actually all the San Fernando Valley, there's many, many tributaries to the Los Angeles River. And most of the time, those washes are dry. And people run in and out of them and come up. And if your house backs directly to it, you're certainly going to have more traffic behind your house than you would in a standard neighborhood where you have fences and you actually have a neighbor behind you instead of a portion of the Los Angeles River. So that's that's one of the things we always talk about. Check the satellite pictures as you're doing your home search. That way you can help from getting all excited about a house on online. And then when you show up and you realize it's next to something you can't fix, that it's not going to be a good house no matter what you get. Because even if you think you're getting a deal on that house, because it's something that you cannot fix, you're going to have to give that same deal to whoever buys it when you sell it. And in doing so, you've limited your upside. 
that's a really, really great uh, advice, great point. In terms of schools, um, schools right now, if you are a first-time home buyer and you don't have any f- children at this time, of course, that's one of the things you may not think about. However, down the line, those are some of the things that we always talk to our first-time home buyers about. You know, where do you see yourself in five or ten years? And schools at that point may become a, a, a you know desirable thing to think about. So. We always try to make sure we find uh, a home that's going to fit the school requirement. True. And if, you, if schools are the biggest priority, which for many people they are, because you, you're, you're in California, you're, depending on where you live, you're left with a choice. You can either pay for private school or you can pay more for your house in a great school district, but it still winds up costing you one way or the other. So with the schools, they definitely help drive the value of the home. If the schools have very, very low grades on the most people go to greatschools.org to look at the ratings, and they're not always accurate, but that's where most people go. If you if you want to live in a district where the schools are 10 out of 10, then you know, you're going to pay more for your house. If you're okay living in a district where the schools are not very good because schools just simply aren't a priority for you, then you'll pay a little bit less for the house. But again, if the school scores stay low, you're going to wind up giving that same relative discount when you go to sell your house because a lot of people definitely focus on the school scoring and use that as a litmus test, if you will, as to whether or not they want to buy into that district. And then other than that, we're talking about size of the home, and that's number of bedrooms and bathrooms, and you should always plan ahead. Yeah, most people, especially in California, our homes are so expensive out here, even at entry level, you're going to pay close to a half million dollars, if not a little bit more, for a home. And if it fits you right now in your lifestyle and you're fairly young, if you're going to plan on having kids, whether you have them uh, biologically or adopt or whatever, it doesn't really matter. But if you're going to need that room or if you need room for family members to come over and stay with you when they visit you in California, you know, you've got to plan for that too because nobody wants to buy a house and realize two years later, oh, I should have bought more house or I should have bought more bedrooms because it's not cheap to sell a house in California. So we always like to walk everybody through the size of the home. Is it going to meet your needs not only now, but your needs five to seven years down the road too? If you think, you know, 10 or 20 years down the road, that's a whole different conversation. Most people don't stay in their homes 20 years anymore. But, you know, size is one of the things we talk about. And last but not least is lifestyle. Are you an active outdoorsman? I mean, Kirsten, let's talk about that a little bit. Well, what we're finding with a lot of our first-time home buyers this time um, is that they're actually not so keen on having this big trophy home. They really just want to have a roof over their head enough to fit their needs currently because they'd like to go out and make experiences. They, they want to go out and travel. They have outdoor lifestyle or they're, you know, they're, they're not, they're not the same demographic as if you looked at who was buying home homes for the first time about 20 years ago, completely different um, requirement. Yeah. That, that is, has been a big behavioral shift in the buyers. We, you know, back going 15 years uh, into the past here, the we'll call it the executive class for lack of a better term they you know there were a lot of people who had uh executive or almost executive jobs they weren't quite in the c-suite but they were uh you know definitely making enough money to buy a big house and they would stretch and buy the biggest house that they could possibly afford not responsibly afford but possibly afford you know so they could bring people over entertain have a huge yard have a huge house but a lot of these people we'd see you know, they you'd walk into the home and their living room would be done very nicely. The kitchen was done very nicely. If they had an office, that would usually be done nicely. But then, 
they didn't have any other furniture in any other, other rooms except for perhaps the guest bedroom and, and the master bedroom because they were what we call house poor. They were spending so much money on the acquisition and running of the house that they didn't have the money left over. You know, forget about going on vacations and buying other things. They they couldn't even finish furnishing out the house. So that's definitely been a big behavioral shift. And we're you know the million dollar plus range right now is a very slow range for most homes unless it's just really you know, a perfect location done perfectly where it's turnkey, you're just walking in and buying it, those homes are selling quickly. But if there's any kind of functional obsolescence, if the bedrooms are a little bit smaller, if the yard's too big, or there's other maintenance that needs to be done, people are just letting them sit. It, it's uh, that, That's probably the most surprising behavioral shift we've seen in the last 15 years, is that whole class has just disappeared, that class of buyer. Exactly. And now that we've kind of covered knowing your needs, whether it be location, schools, size or lifestyle net going on to point number two is it better to build or to just buy a, a pre-existing home that's actually a hard question because you know kirsten and i just last week and we're out with some new home buyers and uh and we were looking at new construction we do a lot of that and there are trade-offs either way if you know some people especially uh couples with young children they typically want a bigger yard so they can play the kid, have the kids come over, have you know the, the children's friends come over, play dates, and have a lot of room to run around. But typically with newer construction, especially for the last 15, 20 years in California, the builders have, in order to maximize their profits, have been building as many homes as legally possible per acre, which means the homes are very close to each other, and you wind up with a bigger house and a smaller yard, whereas if you go for Older homes, say, built in the 50s, 60s, 70s, even the early 80s, but after that it kind of shifted to the small yard syndrome. But those earlier homes, especially the 50s and 60s, they typically have yard sizes of you know, 7,500 square feet on up. So they get the bigger yard, but now you've got an older house, typically one story if you're in the San Fernando Valley. Even in, even out here in the Conejo Valley, I think you're still pretty much one story. There are some two-story neighborhoods when you get to the 70s and 80s. But you have to go back to... Do you want a bigger house with better flow, better windows, perhaps at what they call a smart house where you have the Wi-Fi connected, like a Nest thermostat, the ring doorbell. Perhaps you have an Arlo uh, alarm system and camera system you want to use. You have Alexa tied into the house. There's a bunch of different ways. The new home builders are doing all those things, and uh, now we're in 2019, so there's enough new laws that have passed where you have to have uh, certain green technology built into the homes. I believe all homes have to have solar panels now, dual-pane windows. Uh, they all have to have fire sprinklers in the house as part of the construction. And then you go from there. So if those are all things that are seriously important to you, building may be the way to go. But you also have to look at some of the downsides. Well, not downsides, but let's say the added, added expenses that come with new home construction. Uh, Kirsten, would you like to address things like Mellow Roos and the HOA fees? Yeah, well... In most of the new communities, you're going to see um, HOA fees. They can range anywhere from $100 a month all the way up to you know five, $600 a month. And they may include various different things, whether it be a pool, a park, gates, uh, security, any type of maintenance uh, on the people's front yards. I mean, each community is different. So, of course, the HOA fees, you have to take them into consideration. Now, with Melrose. Those can be for the life of the loan, uh, meaning for 30 years plus, actually. And they can be anywhere from $100 a month, again, all the way up to three, dollars $400 a month, in addition to a, your HOA dues. So it's, it's one of those things that you want to make sure that 
when you're buying that house that you're willing to take on those additional costs of living in that particular neighborhood. And the HOA is one of the biggest things we see people push back on simply because a lot of people don't see the value in them. For some people, when they come home to you know their their house, you know if there's a gate, great, that's fine. But they don't typically use the community pools, or they don't uh, use some of the other amenities. We, for example, Kirsten and I were just out showing a new home community a couple of weeks ago, and they honestly had the best community center I think I've ever seen. And it was not all multi million dollar homes. They they probably had some homes in there for a million dollars, but most of them were in the five, six, seven range. And, you know, they had multiple pools. They had beachfront entry for the kiddie pools. They had a huge uh, community room that you could lease out for parties and things like that. They had multiple barbecue pit areas. They had a huge grassy area. It was really, really well done. It was a nice amenity to have. And like I said, it was the nicest community center I think we've ever seen. Mm -hmm. However, you've got to pay for that. And some people, if they're going to use it, there's value. If you're not going to use it, there's no value. So why do you want to pay the HOA? They also had Melarus fees in there. And, and for those of you who have never heard about what a Melarus is, it's basically a 30-year construction bond that's floated by the developer. And this pays for the sewers, the sidewalks, the streetlights, all the infrastructure needs of the community. And then what they do is as they sell the homes, they basically amortize that entire whatever the overall cost of the construction bond was over each home based on their size and the lot size and all those other things. So in this particular case, we were looking at houses that were in the mid-sevens, completely built out, and they were looking at about 400 I believe it's $420 or $430 a month in uh, their Melarus fees, which is basically an additional property tax. So they were paying twice what they normally would have been, well, not twice, but almost twice, say 40% more, than most other people in the same price range would be paying. So that's just one of those additional costs that you have to consider as we go forward. Kirsten and I are very good at talking to our buyers about that, and not only that, but also with our buyers' lenders because they have to know as they calculate debt-to-income ratios and uh, everything else, if there is a Melarus included, that needs to be included in the qualifying. You know what? That's a really great point. You were just talking about lenders, and it really brings me to point number three, know your financing options. Um, you know, are you going to go conventional? Are you going to go FHA, VA, or are you going to use an ARM? So, Richard, do you want to elaborate on those four options? Absolutely. So, on conventional loans, that's exactly what they sound like. That's the conventional, run-of-the-mill, normal loan, normal loan limits. Uh, although I've actually seen some 3 and 5% product uh, out there as far as loan products that, that we've seen recently. 3% down or 5% down, but typically it's somewhere north of 3.5% all the way up to as much as you want to put down. They have what they call conforming loan limits, which right now around here, I believe mid-sixes? I've got to check. I should have that number in front of me. I don't. I apologize for that. But but it's basically if you're in a Tier 1 or Tier 2, which is roughly 700 or higher FICO credit score, and you have, you know, three or four months reserves as well as your down payment you know like we said from probably from five percent on up that would be a conventional loan it's usually the best rate interest rate that's out there and the majority of our buyers wind up with that now the next one we want to talk about is the fha loan now fha has slightly different qualifying criteria than the conventional loan does it's there's a couple of different reasons people use fha number one they they have very low down payment which in california is very very common i mean some people you know, actually seem a little embarrassed by that, but please don't be. You would be shocked at how many. I think at this point, 
Uh, we were talking to a lender last week, and about 70% of the loans going through right now are 10% down or less. So, you know, if you have a 10% or less down payment, you're in good company because that's what most people have. So with FHA, you can get by with a lower down payment. You can actually have a higher debt-to-income ratio than would be allowed on a conventional, meaning you can have carry more debt in relation to your income. And you can also have a lower credit score with an FHA loan than you can with a conventional loan. So those are the, the, the two or three reasons that most people choose FHA over VA. Next, we have what's called a VA loan. The VA loan is you have to be a military veteran with an honorable discharge. And at that point, once you have that, and you, if you have your DD-214, which is the form that you're given when you uh, discharge from the military, that qualifies you for the VA loan. Your lender can help you with that. If not, we certainly have VA lenders that work with that. But the beauty of the VA loan is that you can do a no-down payment loan, number one, so you have zero down. And number two, there's a certain amount of the fees associated with the VA loan that the VA will not allow the buyer, you, to pay for. So the seller has to carry some of your closing costs, which in a hot seller's market works, works against you. But as the market has shifted over the last part of 2018 and, and so far into 2019, we're seeing far greater acceptance of people willing to accept VA loans than we've seen over the last three and a half years. So that's a good reason to, if you are a military veteran to or a current military service member, to use the VA loan. And then the next one that Kirsten was talking about was the adjustable rate mortgage or called an ARM. Now, in the environment that we're in today, we would definitely not recommend using an ARM. I mean, you can they have different versions. They call them five ones or seven ones or ten ones, meaning that for the first five, seven, or ten years, the rate remains the same. But after that time, it resets to whatever the current rate is. And then every year after that, it will reset to whatever the current lending rate is. And as most people know who are paying attention to the news anymore for the last six months, we've had a lot of interest rates hike, hike. So we've gone from, you know, mid threes to right now in October, the end of October, it was bumping up against 5% or just over 5%. And then the stock market shed so much value in the back half of the year that it brought it back down to about four and a half. And I think, Kirsten, what do we see this week? 4.625? was Yeah, about 4.625. Yeah, for, for going conventional right now. So... The ARM can lock you into that, and with an ARM, sometimes they will give you a better rate, but in talking to the different lenders that we have, there does not seem to be much difference difference in the annual percentage rate between an ARM, a conventional, or a jumbo. I mean, you, the only time you start seeing an actually lower rate is if you go up into the super jumbo territory, which is north of 700000 for the loan amount, not the purchase amount. And at that point, I think there's just so much money on the table that they can play with the APR a little bit and give the discount rates. But now that the rate, the Fed funds rates have come up off the bottom that they've been sitting on for the last decade, it's it's a lot more competitive, and the lenders simply just don't have as much margin, if you will, to work with that they've been able to to buy down the points or to get you a more aggressive rate. Okay, so next on number four. Have your own agent or broker. And Kirsten, what do I mean by that? Well, uh, many home buyers tend to go in, you know, they look at homes online and they show up to open houses and they think dealing directly with the listing agent would be in their best interest because they think they're going to get a better deal. However, you got to remember the listing agent has the fiduciary responsibility to their seller. They are representing them first. So, of course, you're going to find agents here in the state of California that will be happy to take you on as a buyer as well. But remember, their first responsibility is to the seller. So if you are working with you know, an agent, um, 
know that you're not the one that's going to get, you know, the first priority. The seller is. Um, so that's one of the things that, that we always recommend that you have your own agent when you are going to uh, make an offer on a property. Not only that, you also have to realize that if there's any deal to be had, uh, you know, like you know, when we talk to people who want us, a lot of times we're the listing agent and the buyer will come up to us and they'll say, we want you to represent us. And we're like, okay, why do you want to do that? And they're like, well, we can get a better deal. And there might be some kind of deal to be had, but quite honestly, the seller is going to benefit because it's usually in the in the a form of a reduced commission if both sides are being represented. The, the listing agent typically discounts the commission being uh, paid by the seller. So, you know, if there's any deal, the buyer is not going to get as good a deal as if they had a great buyer's agent who negotiated for them. And, you know, they also, you got to realize this, the listing agent already has a standing relationship with the seller. They are, they've, they've been interviewed and the seller liked them the best. So there's a warm relationship there. So even when the best situations, you know, in the best of intentions, more often than not, uh, you know, in a dual agency situation, the seller benefits more than the buyer. So what we would like to point out is if you have a true buyer's agent and an experienced buyer's agent, because there's a difference between the two. A lot of times you'll come across somebody with a big team. They say, hey, we got buyer's agents. You have to realize as a buyer that the entry-level position in real estate for a lot of agents is as a big team's buying a buyer's agent because they don't know anything yet. So they throw them in the car and say, go take some clients out and go learn. Go, go show them homes, go write some contracts. And quite honestly, it is a very good way to learn. However, it may not always be best for the buyers who are going through that process. And that's not a slam on buyer's agents or anything else. It's not to say that they don't have, you know, that they're not doing the best they can with the knowledge that they have and that they're holding your fiduciary up. However, it's better to have an experienced agent negotiating and fighting for you than it is to have somebody who's just got their license three days ago. So <laughs> you yeah. may want to look into that. Going on to point number five, get a real home inspector, and you need to make sure you listen to them. Now, why is that in- important? You know, many times, Kirsten, we've had buyers say, well, I have a friend who's a contractor. I have a family member who's a contractor, and he'll know what to look for. And you got to realize that building a home, fixing a home, Working on a home is completely different than being the home inspector because a home inspector, you know, especially one who has a certification from Korea or the you know, it's California Real Estate Inspectors Association and uh, a couple of the other ones that are the national level, these people have gone, I don't, there's not a license like a real estate license, but it, if they have the Korea membership or some of the national memberships, there is a expectation set and there is a code of performance, if you will, that they have to meet. And they also are taught on what to actually look for because if, say, for example, your family member, say your brother, okay, he's a carpenter or he's a framer or he's a plumber or he's an electrician. For the area that he's a specialist in, he'll know that inside and out and be able to tell you if something's right or wrong. However, what about for the HVAC? What about if he's a plumber, what about the electricity? Or if he's an electrician, what about the plumber? So the, the home inspectors are trained to look for the whole scope of the job. And they don't they don't go and cut into walls. They don't uh, do any kind of penetrating inspection. What they do is they go through, they test your systems, meaning are, are all the electrical outlets grounded? Does the HVAC work the way it's supposed to? Is the air conditioner cooling enough? Is the heater heating enough? Is the 
you know, does the plumbing, is the pressure too high? Do all the systems work as far as are the faucets leaking? Do they not leak? Are there any water leaks under the sink? Those kind of things. If it's a raised older house with a raised foundation, they go up underneath the foundation, take a look at that. They go up into the attic. Is the roof secured? Are, you know, is, are there any penetrations, leaks coming through the roof? Uh, are there rat droppings in the attic? I mean, there's all kinds of things they're looking for. And they know how to call it out. And they're also educated in what the current codes are because that is something that changes all the time. So you definitely want to make sure you're not buying a house with a bunch of code violations. Uh, let's see what else is there. No, I actually have a question about the home inspector. Okay. So how many different types of home inspectors are there in terms of what you're looking oh, for yeah. as a buyer? Because that's really an important point that we want to make here. It's actually probably more important what the agent's looking for. Well, not more important. It's as important. I'll put it that way. Because there there are three types of home inspectors that Kirsten's talking about. And you have... The home inspector, and these are typically the newer home inspectors, they're chicken little. They call out everything under the sun. They scare the hell out of everybody. They scare the buyers. They scare the buyer's agents. Sometimes they scare the listing agents. You know, just, this is all horrible. The house is going to fall down. All right, so that's that's one type. Then there's the opposite type, the polar opposite of, on the spectrum on this one, is that the person who calls out nothing. And quite honestly, they scare us to death as real estate brokers because there's always something. I think in all the home inspections we've done, and you know, hundreds of them at this point, at one point, have I had an inspector come back to me and says, you know, I feel kind of bad about taking a fee. This house is perfect. But, you know, there's, that, that almost never happens, honestly. So the, the, the polar opposite is the inspector who calls out nothing. He doesn't call anything out because he's afraid that if he blows the deal that the real estate agent won't hire him anymore and he won't get more business. So we don't like those guys either. The, the agent or the, sorry, the inspectors we always look for are the ones who are a little bit of both in that they'll call out everything, but they give proper context to it because there's this thing called grandfathering. And what that means is when the house was built, everything was right. It was all to code. Everything was signed off. But as, you know, say you're buying a home that's 35 years old, there's certain things in that home that are not to code to today's standards, but since they were legal when the house was built, they're grandfathered in, meaning until the house is structurally altered to a certain extent or over a dollar, a certain dollar value, they don't have to bring those other things up. But if they do a certain amount of improvements on a dollar square on a dollar figure, or if they increase the square footage by a certain amount, then you trigger some things that take away some of that grandfathering. We have to upgrade to uh, LED lights is one of them. Say your house burned down today and it was being rebuilt, you'd have to have fire sprinklers. You may even have to have solar. I know that on a new build you have to have it. I don't know if it on a rebuild or a reconstruction after a fire. I don't know if you have to install solar or not. I know you will have to put in the fire sprinklers no matter what, though. But those are the three types of home inspectors. We always look for the one in the middle that will tell you everything that's good and bad about the house, but put it in proper context. I mean, if there's a safety issue, they're all good about saying, hey, this really needs to get fixed. But then, you know, the other guys, especially the chicken littles, you know, they're, they're kings of CYA, meaning that, oh, you know what, you need to get an electrician to cover this, you need a plumber for this, you need a roofer for this. You know, they all say that just to take away responsibility for them, but at the same time, a good one will say, hey, no, you really need to get a roofer. I saw some things that are bad. You know, the written, if the written inspection report, when you see it, if you've never seen a home inspection report, you will literally think the house is falling down. They, <laughs> they refer everything out. This has to go to an electrician. This needs to go, you know, and that's the whole CYA, you know, well, figure that one out, uh, that they, they practice. But, you know, a good home inspector will actually stop and, as he's doing the walkthrough and tell you, hey, this really is an issue. you got to take I need you to go talk to a plumber about this because it's outside my scope, and I think there's a real issue here. That's, that's, of the three, that's what we always look for. 
Excellent. Now go on to point number six, and that's really do not open any new accounts or run up existing ones. Now, why is that important? You know, this is huge. This this should be, this should have been point number one to be honest. So, unless you're an all cash buyer for your first home, listen to this and probably move this up to point number one. So. Once you qualify for a loan, whether you go online and do it or whether you're working with a lender, whatever, whenever you get qualified, they're going to make that qualification or that pre-approval, if you will, based on your current situation. And they're looking at your debts, you're looking at your income, they're looking at your reserves, how much money do you have saved, all those things. So they run your credit at that point. And then you're going to find, will help you find the house you're looking for. You'll get into escrow. And you'll say, oh, my gosh, you know what? We want to get new appliances. I want a new stove. I want a new refrigerator. I need a new washer and dryer. Let's go down to Best Buy and see what they have on sale and open a charge account. The problem with all that is is any new credit inquiries have to be explained in writing because they pull your credit on the front end when you get pre-approved. They pull your credit as you go into the file for that uh, full approval you get in midway through the loan process. But then, again, they pull your credit one more last time before they fund the loan. And this is literally two or three days before you close and get your keys. And if there is a change between any of those credit reports, they stop everything, literally throw the brakes on and say, okay, what has happened? Now, the danger there is you could have had, even if you didn't open an account, let's say you applied for an account and you didn't get it, that's what's considered a hard hit on your credit, and it's going to take anyway between 4 and 12 points right off the top, sometimes even more depending on what kind of inquiry it was. Or if you go and buy a car, that is new credit and also increases your debt-to-income ratio. That could keep you from qualifying, and at that point, you've already paid for the appraisal, you've already paid for the inspection, and quite honestly, if you've released all contingencies and you can't close, you're probably going to lose your down payment as well. So do not open any credit cards. Do not open any new store accounts. Don't go buy a car. You know, also, here's some things when people don't think about. Don't have any large deposits into your bank account without a clear paper trail, meaning if somebody gives you a gift of, you know, say you got a family member, and this is very common, family member wants to give you a gift for your down payment or your closing costs or anything like that, great. They need to write a letter to the lender saying, I so-and-so, this, I am the father, I am the father-in-law, mother-in-law, whatever, I'm gifting this person X amount of dollars. It came from my checking account. I wrote them a check. They have it there. If you get some large cash deposit that can't be explained, the bank's going to get very excited about that, and they may pull your loan approval over it unless you can explain where it came from, especially if it's being used as part of the qualification process. And the other thing, I'm, we're really, really serious about this, and, and the only reason we, we harp on this so hard is we actually had a buyer who was on the bubble. It was very close to when we qualified for this house, got him into escrow, we're getting ready to close, and they opened a Best Buy account, and they got approved for a few thousand dollars, but they said, well, we didn't use any of it. We just opened the account. You have to understand when a lender looks at your accounts, they take your open credit to buy. Let's say you had the $3,000 open. They're going to assume that you've used all of that $3,000 and count that against your income. They don't look at what your current balance is. They look at what your maximum balance could be, and that's how they figure your debt-to-income ratio. So even opening an account that you're not using, you have to come up with a written explanation. And in this particular case we're talking about, they had to get a letter from Best Buy stating that, yes, they had been pre-approved for $3,000, but they had not used any of it, and the account balance was currently zero. And at that point, we got the loan through, but it delayed everything by about a week. And it was just an absolute fire drill that we didn't need. And we'd had this speech with them. They just didn't listen. So 
once you get into the home buying mode, no new credit accounts, don't buy a car, don't put any big cash deposits into your bank account, everything will be fine. That was some really valid points right there. I mean, we would hate for you to have to give up your deposit and paid all that money in, you know, inspection fees and so forth because you got so excited and you want to go out and buy a new washer and dryer before you closed escrow. Now, going on to the next point, which is point number seven, is taxes and insurance. Now, there are certain things that we need to know uh, about taxes and insurance. And, Richard, what are the four more, like the four, four most important things? Well, you know, everybody talks about death and taxes as two things you can't avoid. When they, they need to talk about insurance as well because if you have a financed mortgage, you're definitely going to always be paying insurance as well. So you basically have three, two, always two components and possibly three depending on how much you put down. If you put less than 20% down on your purchase, you're going to have what's called PMI, which is private mortgage, mortgage insurance. And that can run anywhere from a low end of a couple hundred dollars all the way up to four or $500 depending on how much you borrowed. So as part, your payment's made up of what they call PITI, and that's, the first P is for principal, that's the amount you borrowed. The first I is for interest, so your principal and interest is the first part. That's what they calculate, you know, when everybody says how much is a loan going to cost you, that's typically all they're talking about is that payment right there. But then with a lot of loans, they roll in your taxes and insurance, and your taxes are going to be your property taxes, and basically whatever that number is, it's usually, you know, for a rule of thumb, we use one and a quarter percent of the purchase price. It, you know, so you take that and then you annualize it, split it into 12 equal payments. They add that on top of the principal and interest. So that's the PIT. And then the last I is insurance, and that's your homeowner's insurance that covers the structure for fire or, or you know, not necessarily flood. That's a different policy altogether. But with the insurance required by the lender, so that's your PITI. Now, if you put less than 20% down, you're also going to have PMI on top of that, so you'll have a fifth component to the payment. But you, when you're sitting down with your lender and you're talking about, okay, what's my payment going to be, make sure that you understand that it's not just principal and interest. The taxes and insurance are usually a part of that. You always have an option. Well, I don't say always. You have an option depending on what type of loan you're getting. On FHA and VA, I believe they're automatically rolled into the payment. You don't have a choice. But on a conventional loan, you have the ability to pay the property taxes yourself and the insurance yourself. And in L.A. and Ventura County, I guess all of California, actually, you know, you get hit with two payments. There's, it's basically half is due in uh, November and the other half is due in uh, February, I guess, early February. Anyway, we get the bills a couple of times. They're close together, surprisingly. You would think they'd be six actually, months it's apart. April. Oh, is it April? Yeah. All right, so November and April or October and April or something. Like that. I don't know. Anyway, uh, you know, you'll get a tax bill and you can pay it yourself if you prefer not to have it set up into a escrow account with your mortgage. Okay, so now you figured out PITI. So let's go on to point number eight, which I knew was coming when we bought our first house, but it was a surprise at how big it became. And that is that Home Depot and Lowe's or whatever your home improvement stores in your area are going to become your new home away from home. Yes, <laughs> that is definitely uh, a true statement. Um, I like to paint and uh, I'm actually the painter in the family. Yes. And uh, it's kind of therapeutic Therapeutic for me. I mean, I, I think with my dad's background, um, you know, he, he was very, very um, a big, on. yeah, very hands on. And he taught me quite a bit of home improvement stuff. And I am forever grateful for that. So uh, with paint, um, that's definitely something that I handle in our house. Uh, Richard 
he, he will help me, yeah. <laughs> but it's not his not, uh, favorite. However, as I said, it's very therapeutic for me, and it kind of gives me back to my roots with my dad. But some of the other things that you are going to you know, need when you are around the house is definitely ladders and hoses and weird tools, and you're going to do different types of projects. And initially, when you buy a home, if it's a brand new home, of course, you're probably not going to have as many projects. But if you're buying a home that is needing improvement, some of the things that you may want to do on your own, um, you know, you can certainly do so. Others you may want to contract out. However, we have found over the years that we definitely love Home Depot and Lowe's because there's a lot of the little home improvement things that we can handle on our own that they come in handy for. And they also, usually on Saturday morning, they'll have some kind of class almost every Saturday morning at your local Home Depot or Lowe's, you know, anything from, you know, how to lay tile, how to do grout, how to, uh, you know, replace shower doors, how to hang cabinets. I've seen all kinds of stuff there. So, you know, when you're renting, you don't think about it so much. You might paint when you rent, but, but by and large, that's about as far as people go. But once you own the house, all of a sudden... You are the maintenance man or maintenance woman or, or however you want to phrase it. So you need to go by the ladder. You need to have the hoses. You need to have that really funky wrench if you're going to go replace a faucet where you have to crawl up underneath the sink and you need a specialized wrench that reaches up there and that will undo the nut that keeps the faucets in place. Uh, you know, it's just weird stuff like that. But you are definitely going to be spending a lot more time at Home Depot and Lowe's. So, you know, they have apps for that. So <laughs> go ahead, get them on your phone and start using them. Yeah, yeah. So, Kirsten, you know, there's certainly a lot of uncertainty. I'll use that word twice in a sentence. How about that? Uh, in the market today, in, in general, and in, we have a lot of people who are like, you know what? I just want to I want to wait and see what happens. I want to see where things go. What happens if somebody decides to wait today and wait until, let's say, late spring or summer to buy a house as opposed to doing it today? Well, there, there are certain things that you've got to look at. Um, of course, interest rates being one, uh, we had a... Uh, huge uh, increase in interest rates uh, over the last year. Well, I wouldn't say huge, but almost a percentage point. And now they've kind of come back down. And for next year, we're projected to just have two increases by the end of the year next year. Or next year, I keep saying next year. We're already in 2019. So in 2019, we're supposed to come up to about 5.3%. However, uh, all depending on where you fall in the spectrum right now, if you're uh, buying a $600,000 home, 600000 uh, with a 10% down payment, so now it's going to include the, the PMI, which is the private mortgage insurance, and you're having an interest rate of 4.5%. You're looking at about $3,756 or $3,756 per month in your uh, monthly payment. Now, if you were to wait uh, maybe six months, the rate will jump up to 5%. That same 600000 uh, purchase with a 10% down, including the PMI, is now going to put you at $3,918. So in just waiting six months, potentially you can be paying $162 more a month. And you start doing the, you know, the calculations and figure out, okay, well, that's almost $2,000 a year and roughly 20000 over 10 years. So next thing you know, it's just going to escalate. So if you have the ability to purchase now, of course, uh, that's a that's a you know excellent time to purchase because the interest rates are low. We do have some inventory right now, more so than we did, I would say, six, seven months ago. So it's definitely advantageous. The prices have started to balance themselves out just a tad bit. Um, so there's definitely some deals to be had. 
Um, it's true. It's the it's the best buyer's market we've seen in probably three and a half or four years at this point. And, you know, one of the other costs of waiting that, that are harder to quantify is simply that if you wait till summertime, you've got a lot more competition. It's you know, you, the best deals you can strike are always going to be off-season just simply because you have less competition. People, you know, any of the families with kids, they typically try to move between May and September because they want to try to get the move done during summertime. So either, you know, it's as it's, it's little disruption to the kids in school as possible. However, if you have the ability to buy outside of that summer window, you're going to come across the sellers who are actually really serious or have to sell. So, you know, as a buyer, that's a much better place to be. And at this point, we're almost up on five months of inventory right now in the market, which we haven't seen in years and years. So it certainly gives you not only a greater selection of homes, it gives you a better quality of selection of homes. So, you know, I would certainly much rather be buying today than I would be back in June, not only with higher interest rates, but also far more competition. Well, I think also what you want to look at is the ability to have tax write-offs, right? If you're If you're waiting, well, then the time you wait, then you're going to miss that opportunity for having tax write-offs. True. You, you, you're you able to write off the interest. It, you know, granted, they've capped it at $10,000, but for most first-time home buyers, that's not going to be an impediment to them. It's You, know, you need to get north of eight fifty or 900 before the property tax starts capping out, and that's a whole different conversation, a whole different podcast. So we won't go into that part right now, but you're, you're basically, not only are you giving up the less giving up the benefit of having less competition today you're going to lose that six months of building equity that mm-hmm. six months of being able to write off the taxes uh, you know and, and that's important because that there's the benefit of the tax write-off you know at the end of the year when you haven't been owning a home is a shock to a lot of people all of a sudden you're getting a much bigger refund check or for some people who weren't getting a refund check at all it's like oh wow I didn't know that and in most cases, they're not paying much more than they were paying in rent, but now they're getting the double benefit of the, the tax write-off and the building equity. And if you stay in the home 10, 15, 20 years, all of a sudden you've got a nice you know, chunk of equity. So when you sell it, you've got a nest egg to go work on your next thing, whether it be buying or, or whatever you want to do at that stage in your life. So, all right, we've covered the first nine. Yeah, don't <laughs> wait. Sorry, caught you off guard there. <laughs> all right, so point number 10. Let's talk about this. Call Richard and Kirsten. That's us. And why do you want to do that? Well, for a number of reasons. Number one is experience. We've been representing buyers and sellers all over the three, you know, the three valleys are our main area of business. So, you know, San Fernando Valley, Conejo Valley, Simi Valley. We've been doing business in all, all of these for the last 15 years. We have, you know, hundreds of happy clients all spread out all over the place. You go look on Yelp or Zillow or... Um, What's the other place? Is it the Google now? Yeah, They're, Google. Yeah. Google. Sorry, we're behind the times. Took a while to catch up on Google reviews. But, you know, we've got five-star reviews everywhere. We've got very, very happy clients. We're able, we're actually able to put you in personal touch. If you want to talk to them and say, how was the experience? We certainly have clients who are willing to talk to you about that. You know, we have also, on a personal level, we have bought homes that were already built. We have also built new construction homes for ourselves. So we've, we're not just talking about things in an abstract manner or we've seen people do it. We've gone through it ourselves. We know the, both the joys and the pain on both different ways of doing it. So we'll help you tailor the best strategy for you and help you find that perfect house, whether it be a, a resale house that somebody else is moving, selling and moving out of or a brand new construction that you, nobody's ever lived in before. We also want to talk about 
qualifications. As we said at the beginning of the podcast, Kirsten and I are both licensed real estate brokers. That is the highest license available in real estate in California. That means that if we wanted to, we could do loans, we supervise other agents, anything to do in real estate, whether it be commercial or residential, we are qualified and licensed to do. However, residential is our thing and that's what we stick with. We also have the accredited buyer designation. That is the highest buyer specific designation you can get as a real estate professional and you have to have had a certain amount of production and deals and you have to send those deals in and prove that you've represented so many buyers and able to get that particular designation that's only one of many that we have but these are all things that work for you to ensure that you're getting the best representation you can in the time that you're looking to purchase a home and when you get into escrow and have to negotiate all the way through to make sure you're getting the best deal on the best house for you. You know what? We were actually talking about this being the first time home buyer needs that everyone needs to know. However, these are some of the same things that could be used for clients that have, um, you know, going into selling a home and having to buy a new one after being in a home for 20, 30, 40 years. So, That's a whole other podcast. I know, but, but some of the things, you know, it's like if, if we have some – uh, sellers that are looking to move, and you know now they're having to be home buyers for the first time in many many decades. So of course this would apply to them as well. I think. You know what? You're right. I guess I guess we need to create a new class, the first time home seller. You know, yeah. they, they bought that home, they've been in 25, 30 years, and now they're selling. And it, it's funny to think of it that way because it just it doesn't seem logical, but it's true. You know, after you've lived in a house for thirty years, in Quite honestly, I mean, speaking as a real estate professional now who's been you know, neck deep in this for 15 years here in California, the market and real estate has evolved and changed so many times in the last 15 years that even if you sold your house 10 years ago, it's different. We, we had some buyers earlier this year. No, was it this year? Yeah, it was just earlier this year who hadn't bought a house. I mean, they'd sold a home, but they hadn't bought a house you know, since the Great Recession. So you know, back before the Great Recession, you know, if you had a pulse, you could get a million-dollar loan. Nobody cared, and you got it. It was no problem. This was still their mindset. They're like, oh, we can qualify. We can qualify. No problem. No problem. And they spoke to a lender, and instead of qualifying for a million-dollar loan, no problem, even though they had good cash flow, they only qualified for like 500000 and And it was the shock of the life to them. And we had been warning them, say, hey, you know what? Real estate's changed. It's, it's not going to be like it was. They're like, oh, no, we got this. No problem. We got friends at the bank. I'm like, Okay. And, of course, they couldn't get qualified and they couldn't get the house they wanted. But it, it, it really matters. I mean, you know, you, real estate, even right now, is different than real estate five years ago. And it's completely different than 10 years ago, which is completely different than 15 years ago. So I guess what we're saying is if you haven't bought or sold in the last five or six years, we need to have a long conversation just to give you the current lay of the land because it has changed. And who represents you really does matter. Right, Kirsten? That is sure does. And we would love to represent you. All right. The end of the podcast will tell you how to get in touch with us. You you know, there's a myriad ways of doing it, certainly on Facebook, certainly on Instagram, certainly on our emails or our phones, which are all coming right up. We'd like to thank you for tuning in. And as always, we want to hear what you want to hear. So send us an email or a text. Say, hey, I'd like to see you cover this in your next podcast, and we'll be happy to do so. Thanks for listening, and we'll be talking to you soon. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you like what you heard or you want more info, please give us a call at 805-404-1167. Again, that's 805-404-1167 or send an email to sold at powellfinehomes.com. 
If you're ready to move on with your life in Los Angeles or Ventura counties, call us even quicker. The team at Powell Fine Homes are your real estate experts and who you hire matters. You can find us on the web, on Facebook, and on Instagram every day, and you'll love the results that our proven systems and model deliver for you. Call, email, or DM us today, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.